Welcome to CPP Chat, a proxy iterator onto what's going on in the world of C++, chatting with guests from the community. Now, before we build up to this week's guest, John has some disclaiming to do. All right. So this disclaimer actually has a disclaimer. If you Google disclaimer pitchfork, you will find this. Uh, and I'm going to have to edit it because apparently there's an age rating on this podcast. Um, so these, this is actually lyrics. Random disclaimer. Hey, don't do anything I say in this song, okay? It's effing fiction. If anything happens, don't effing blame me, white America. Um, if you want to know the source of that, just Google disclaimer pitchfork, and the top thing that comes up is, is an article about this lyrics of this song. Anyway, uh, we have uh, we have what's likely to be a very very fun show today. Just found out that Michael Case is in the audience, so it's going to be a fun show. Anyway. Um, what I forgot to say last episode, and so I'm going to do this first. I again, I have to censor this because I have the damn book, which is what John Lakos calls it. Because as you notice, uh, the cover of it has a damn on it, so he calls it the damn book. Anyway, I have it in house. Needless to say, I've already read it. There's lots and lots of notes I've taken in. You just can't see them. Uh, anyway, I'm actually actually am excited. This is the most eagerly awaited. Uh, a book in the C++ community for the last, I think, 10 years, or maybe even longer. <laughs> Closer to 20, I think. It could be, yeah. This this book has been in the works for a very long time. Um, anyway, um, speaking of long-time mysteries, there's this guy that sometimes posts and uh, says some kind of interesting things, and his name is Vector of Bool. And he never actually says what his real name is. This is crazy. We, we know him as Vector of Bool, but we don't know who he really is. So uh, not only is this a mystery in the C++ community that we're just about to reveal, it's also a pet peeve of mine because I have long time said, we are a professional community. We're not a bunch of gamers. This isn't some weird sexual cult where we have to hide our identities. This is how we make our money. This is a profession and professionals sign their work. So we don't use clever things like fill squared or something like that. <laughs> we sign our names. So welcome to the show, Vector. Do you want to tell us what your real name is? <laughs> Hello, my name is Colby. <laughs> Colby Peck. I, I used to use my real name on Slack, but I just... I don't know why. I don't even remember why I switched it back. So uh, I'm Vector of Pool almost everywhere. Maybe thought you'd be more efficient. Yeah. You might have been more efficient. Yeah. Space saving, right? <laughs> uh huh. That's the idea. Yeah. So, no, but, but the reason I say this is because um, if you were to come and speak at a conference and you were to say, hey, Colby Pike is speaking for the first time, well, who the heck's that? But they said, hey, Vector of Bool is speaking. It's like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I've read what that guy says. And that's what I'm saying is because when you come and speak, we're not going to say you're Vector of Bool, although we may have to put that in parentheses or something, uh, because it's your name and that's who you are. And uh, you should uh, you should associate your work with your name. So this is my pet peeve. And everybody says, OK, Boomer. And uh, and then they go on. Right. So um, anyway, so where have you posted with that name? Where have you made that name famous? Uh, I have a blog under that name. Okay. I write a lot of Reddit comments under that name. Okay. <laughs> I tweet under that name. 
Uh, that's my GitHub username. Yeah. Um, in some places, I do use my real name in copyright disclaimers, I think. Yeah. But uh, that's most of my online presence. Yeah. Oh, I have a YouTube channel that I haven't posted to in, a, in too long. <laughs> I went with that name as well. Um, there you could have seen my name if you if you look at the the name of the home directory that I use. I see. So it's not it's not a complete secret, but So you're not exactly hiding from the law. Yeah. <laughs> For the most part, yeah. Do people ask you what what the heck is vector bool? Um or do people know? Does everybody know what that means? What the significance of that is? Most people in the programming community understand it. C++, I've never gotten a question from a C++ dev. But some people who uh, see it from outside just aren't quite sure what that means. I see. But, yeah. Okay. Does other people give you grief for this, or is it just me? Uh, you're the first so far. <laughs> okay, great. All right. Well, you can just say, okay, boomer, and drive on. <laughs> mm -hmm. I would like to hear how you explain it to a layperson. Uh, I'll just say, I usually just say it's a programming concept or I'll send them a link to the CPP reference page with the big, the big note section that says, here's all the things that go wrong when you put bool here. That's cruel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's even more cruel. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just tell me, you'll understand when you get older. Right. All right. Uh, so, um, so yeah, let's, um. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, uh, well, do we have news before we get into Pitchfork? We have a little bit of news. Okay. Um, I think we, we probably mentioned last time, maybe even the time before, most conferences have been cancelled. So we're not going to do a big long list of those. But quite a few have been moving online. I can't remember how many we mentioned before, but uh, C++ Russia has moved online. It's going to be the end of June, beginning of July, I forget now. Uh, Italian C++, that's also moving online again in June. And as of this week, in fact, I'm pretty much breaking the news here now. Excellent. C++ on C is moving online. Uh, that's also going to be moving back to July. So I did publish a, uh, a news post last night, but I haven't really published that anywhere else yet. So I'm going to do that shortly afterwards, but I'll put that in the show notes. Um, and also ACCU Belfast was cancelled completely. We may have mentioned that last time. And Microsoft had... Uh, an online conference, the uh, the Pure Virtual C++ conference. The videos for that are already out. So that's the conference roundup. So um, <clears throat> a little birdie told me, uh, and I don't know if this is at all secret, um, I wasn't able to watch any of them, so I wasn't there. But apparently I'm in the minority because uh, they, had, uh, they had huge numbers that actually were tuning in live. Um, this is one of the things that, I know that in talking about conferences, one of the things that we've talked about doing is, well, maybe we should stream the keynote live. Maybe we should do something special and maybe we should do some things live. And I talked to, well, uh, Mark Bashan, who runs Bash Films, that does all the recording for both CppCon, uh, C++ Now. He also does the recording for LLVM conference. Um, he, he told me that he had done this a live uh, at a Linux conference where they really, really wanted to have a live presence. And he said they spent a huge amount of money and they got a, a very small turnout. The, he said it would have cost less to send airline tickets to everyone who was listening live. 
it it was that disparity between the number of people who, you know, of course, that wasn't during the pandemic, right? I mean, this was years ago. Um, the thing is that given a choice between watching live and watching a recording where I can stop it, where I can back it up, where I can speed it up if I want all these things, turns out the recording generally is better than live. It's not an announcement. It's not like I'm announcing the NBA draft or something like that. There's no suspense. I'm giving a talk and you want to stop and back it up. So that makes sense. And so the idea of doing conferences live is something that I've thought about and pretty much said, it's just not worth it. Nobody's going to, why watch it live when you can watch a recording? And what's the point? But Microsoft said, well, the pandemic, we're going to try it because we've got message we want to get out. We want to talk about C++. They did it and they got over a thousand viewers live watching the, watching the event. Um, so I don't know. It's causing me to rethink a little bit about what's possible, uh, what makes sense. Uh, the big question, of course, is, is this the kind of thing that would happen again after the pandemic's over? You know, when people are commuting to work and they're at work and there's all this stuff going on, are they going to be able to tune in live? Or is that something that makes more sense when you're working from home? Who knows? Uh, but it's, but it's very interesting and kind of exciting to know that, that the community was that interested to watch watch live at that with that kind of numbers. Yeah, it's definitely making us all rethink a lot of our assumptions. And as you say, you know, many of them won't continue to hold when this is all over. But we're going to be uh, living in a new world, so we're going to have to reevaluate those assumptions anyway. Yeah, I've definitely given this a lot of thought. Um, I, I was also in the camp that I I wasn't sure an online conference could really work. It certainly, wouldn't work in the same way. No. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of experimenting. Well. We've done one so far. Yeah. Uh, C++ London uh, meetup um, online. That went really well. Uh, some experimental aspects to that, including having a separate um, video conferencing rooms for the attendees, as well as a broadcast of the, the speaker. And that seemed to go quite well. Uh, some some more ideas to, uh, to put into the mix next time as well. So we're going to keep iterating that. Um, which actually leads me on to, to mention that a lot of uh, meetups in our community are moving online so many that it wouldn't be possible for me to list them here now but you don't need to because someone's already, already done the work um so harold from uh, the sweden c group has put a um a feed that he's picking up from meetup.com uh, directly on their website that i'll put a link to on uh, the sweden cpp.se site uh, of all the upcoming virtual meetups in the c community and now we can travel to any of them because we don't have travel time just time zones to worry about. Um, yeah, and this is definitely. I mean, I I'm constantly asking myself, what's what's the world going to be like after uh, after we return to normal? And I would love to see a one or or maybe a few virtual user groups where people are not, you know, all, all our user group by now they always are synonymous with local user group, right? Because the whole point is you go and you do face to face, and that restricts you to kind of local. And that I think that should continue. I think face to face is wonderful. I'm, I mean, I would really like to actually, you know, shake the hand of a C plus plus programmer at some point in the future, or at least bump fists, which is the way I usually do it. Um, that would be great to return to that. But it, but it's also there's room, I think, for people who are very remote or afraid of crowds or afraid of germs or whatever the reason. Uh, I'm, I would love to see a, an option for them as well, and that would be that'd be sweet. Yeah, for all of us to hide behind usernames. For all of us that hide behind usernames, that's right. <laughs> I want to get you a sticker that says, hello, my name is Vector Bull. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
All right. Um, so there's one other announcement, uh, and that's in the tools camp, at least one of them that I know of. Are there others? Uh, GCC 10.1. Uh, did you know some about this, uh, Colby? I've been, well, I've been sort of eagerly awaiting GCC 10 because I know it's going to be like the first compiler with full concepts and constraints all done. And this is this is, uh, one of the big uh, C20 features that I'm really excited about, maybe more than any other. Um, I mean, they've shipped, they've been shipping the Concepts TS for a long time, and I've been using it since uh, GCC 8, which has a, a whole bunch of asterisks on it of things that is slightly different. But they're now shipping it, and... You mean slightly different from the standard, is what you're saying? Yeah, slightly different from the standard. So It's not, not, not a perfect implementation of the standard in 8. Right. Yeah, there are certain differences... And um, now I'm really excited to see that finally available. Um, it, um, they have Constext Bernou. They have um, their experimental coroutine support with a behind a flag um, and a whole bunch of other smaller C++ 20 features. So I think this puts them close to, or if not the furthest ahead in terms of uh, modern standard implementations. So that's great, great advancement. I'm excited to be able to try it out and use it. Yeah. And 2020 is not even over yet. Yeah, it's not even over. I mean, uh, we'll probably have, have a while until modules become available in any compilers, but uh, that one's quite a big change compared to anything else. So wait and see. All right. Um, so you've, you've been playing with concepts for a while. Yeah. What uh, what uh, what's your feeling? So I've well I've been playing a lot with the uh, concepts TS that was shipping in GCC ten because I'm mm-hmm. trying to trying to not in GCC ten but in GCC nine, which is missing some of the niceties like uh, abbreviated syntax, but I'm really enjoying it. I the error messages are markedly improved. They're still large, but they're actually understandable. It could say that this here is where you had a constraint failure and not some someone made a semantic error like four miles away and you have to sort of work your way back to find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm even more, and not, not a lot of people discuss it as much, but the effects it has on overload resolution where I can define two functions, two template functions, or even two template, two class templates rather, and I can say, I can give them different constraints so that they look like they're the same over, they're the similar enough overload. But now I can say this one is more efficient or behaves slightly differently depending on the, the semantic or rather the syntactic properties of the types of arguments that you've given it. And that's, that's something I really am excited for concepts. So can you give us a specific example of what you mean by that? Yeah, so um, one example I've worked, been working on rec- recently is a library that does data compression and you have to give it two, two arguments. You have to give it some input and you have to give it some output and it'll uh, take the scratch or it'll compress the input and write it into the output. Now, there's a no allocating version, which will compress as much as it can into the output. And there's an allocating version, which will compress 
all of the input and dynamically resize the output as it goes. And so the two functions look the same, but depending on the type of the output argument, it could be either a dynamically sized buffer or a statically or a, a fixed size buffer. And I can have two completely different implementations that both behave intuitively and they at the call site they look the same and you can understand what's happening at the call site. So you don't have two different functions to call, it's just one, one in, in a single overload set. And the, the point is that the decision is not made by the caller, but by the callee. The callee looks at the types of the arguments and says, oh, look, I can do something different here because of this type. Yes. The, um, Yes-ish. I mean, the, the caller still has the choice, right? If they hand you a dynamic buffer, then they know that the semantics of that is, okay, grow the output to fit all the compressed input versus put as much as you can in there until you run out of room. This, this, and of course, by the way it is implemented, it's, it's that the dynamic version calls the fixed version that doesn't allocate. So we can, we can define overload sets that have more expressiveness, I guess is the best word. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's probably the big feature that I'm excited about. It's overloading on properties of the type rather than the, the, the full type. Yeah, overloading on, on the semantic and syntactic properties. Well, that, you can't really overload on semantics yet because concepts don't express that is yet. And we're not sure if we're able to do that. But overloading on properties of a type is the best way to put it rather than the name of the type. And you, you, right. Well, essentially, a programming language is finding a way of expressing semantics in syntax, right? I mean, that's what a programming language means. Yeah. Right. The, 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 neither the compiler or the interpreter can actually understand semantics. All it can do is understand syntax. And, yeah. and so that's what we're trying to do. So, uh, so you're, you're essentially saying a little bit more of the semantics is expressible in the syntax, essentially. Yeah. Based because of, the, because of this, this type. Okay. All right. Are those the kinds of things that you talk about on your blog? I haven't had, I haven't posted anything about concepts yet, although I've thought about it. I might have some interesting things to write, but nothing concrete yet. Most of my posts of recent have been all about modules, since that's a hot button issue. Well, it's another huge feature of 20. Right. Uh, you want to talk about what you've been writing there? Sure. I'm, mine's mostly... I, I wrote the I wrote a post back in earlier 2019, a little over a year ago, about like SG15, the tooling study group. They were sort of having this really strong concern over the toolability of modules, and I wrote a post about this, and it kind of took off a lot harder a lot harder than I expected. And it's because of the clickbait title, <laughs> right? What was your clickbait title? It was it was C plus. The post was C modules might be dead on arrival. <laughs> oh no! I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty that's pretty clickbaity. Yeah, it is. And and uh, it did better than I expected. It got quite a bit of circulation across all the all the uh, tech sites, and it did get some work started on SG fifteen and eventually led to the pro the work being done on 
the um, a technical report out of the group that should help uh, steer tooling direction in the future. Okay, so what was so what was your issue? What's your concern, and what was the you know what what did it respond? What was the response? Uh, the concern the concern that not just I had but a, a whole slew of people, mm. most of them from SG fifteen, was over sort of incongruity between the way modules was being specified and the way tools currently operate. Um, it seemed there was a lot of misunderstanding on how build systems actually process source code. And we wanted to make sure that modules was designed in a way that they would be easy, they would be possible to implement tools that behaved or performed in any reasonable speed on those because they it it adds features to the language that mean build system will have to actually look at the code in order to know how to build the code, which is unprecedented in the in the C and C world. Well, we well, except we kind of had that now, right? I mean, they look to see what the what the includes are. So, but that's a really limited syntax, and it maps directly to a physical world, right? I mean, there's a path there. It doesn't. Well, actually, a lot of build tools these days don't actually look at includes. Um, okay, like um, Ninja, a popular build one, as well as Make. When it's generated by actually make make does this ninja does this ms build also does this is they basically watch the compiler execute and ask it which files it opened on its way through and then it scribbles down that result in a in a persistent database and it's able to to look up that reference after the fact in order to know and do, do compilers have an api to report what they're opening or is this are they actually like spying on the file system at the OS level. So GCC and Clang both have one. It's that the dash big M flags. There's a whole set of them where that tell it to write down like a tiny little make file that is um says what the object file name is and then every file that it read as it went through compiling that object file. Whereas MSVC uh, Ninja uses Now wait, 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 I'm still I'm still not on board here yet. Yeah. How does this work? Does the does the tool run the compiler once and then run it again for real? No. Would the big M just says scan? Or, I mean, how does this actually work? So the first time that the tool needs to compile. I'm sorry I'm getting in the weeds, but I'm really curious about this, and I don't know how it works. And, and It's fine. It's a mystery to me. It's fine. So the first time that the build tool needs to run a compilation, there is no object file at all. So it doesn't really matter what the inputs to the file are. It knows it needs to compile it. So when it compiles it, it asks it at the same time, at, while you're compiling, keep track of what files you've read and write them down over here. And then in subsequent invocations, it knows what files went into it in the first place. So so does somehow the build system map that big M file or whatever you call the file, the, that dash big M file, is that somehow mapped to the particular object file? Uh, yes. So the... the uh, dash big M will write a make file syntax, and and GCC or Clang will write a, a tiny little make file that is just an object file, and it's the files that went into it. The, that file is itself an object file. Uh, no, that's a make file syntax. It's a plain text file. Okay, all right. And so that's how things really work now. That's 
And that doesn't work in a, well, the, the compiler doesn't know what file to open, right? I mean, so if you say, oh, import this module, the compiler doesn't know what the file name is, right? Correct. So if you say import A in a file, there needs to be some way the compiler can know how to look up the interface of A. And that's still sort of a floating question of how that happens. Um, <laughs> the standard is being voted on now, but we still don't know how it works. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's different implementations in different compilers that all behave slightly differently. Uh the general rule, well, there's ideas of mappings, like one file that says, here's module name and here's the file that defines it. Um, there's, so the standard does not mandate that there actually be an intermediate file. So if A imports B, then there's no requirement that there be like an intermediate compilation of B. So it could be that the compiler just goes and finds a B module somewhere and just reads it plain text. Um, that would give you probably not a lot of benefit over over uh, include files since um, so they would still have to do the whole lexing and scanning and parsing of every file that you import. The hope is that modules, because of the way they provide source code isolation, it'll be easier to generate reliable pre-compilations of these modules so you can so the compiler can easily pull in the interface of a module without having to reparse the entire thing every time. Um, but in order to generate that that sort of pre-compiled module, which is uh, we've termed the compiled module interface or CMI, previously known as the BMI, but um uh, if we want that speed up, we have to generate that compiled module interface before we can actually compile any other translation units that might import that module. So since we can't know ahead of time what modules it'll import without actually scanning the source file that does the import, we have to implement some sort of scanning phase. And uh, different compilers have been working on there are implementations of a pre-scanner that does this module import scanning as fast as possible because we don't want to do a full parse of the entire C++ source code just to build this this uh, map of who imports who because that would that would probably double the compile times rather than actually shorten them. So that's where we're looking at now. It seems to me. I mean, I I can't see any solution to this except that you accept some kind of um, undocumented, or at least not in the standard, protocol. Yeah. Somehow we say, oh, if you're looking for a, a module with this name, then it's going to be in a file with this name. Or it's, I mean, and, and the idea that, do we just expect all the tool vendors to come up with their own, whatever the way, or do we expect the tool vendors to get together and discuss it outside the standard? This is... Okay, so what has SG15 said about this? SG15 is the standards study group for tooling. Well, pretty much what you just cited as, as worries is exactly what SG15 was worried about that led to the initial um, concerns and led to that, led to that post. But um, from there... So are you serving on 15? I should ask you that. 
not? Or are you just uh, looking over their shoulder and uh, making their lives difficult? Make, mostly looking over the shoulder, although I hope I'm not making their lives difficult. Been kind of. That's why you use an assumed name, right? Right. Uh, I haven't been very closely affiliated with any of their work for a while, but um, the technical report they're hoping to produce basically addresses all the concerns you just noted, which is there will be some standard way that tools will interact and it won't be part of the proper language or library standard uh, because tools inevitably want to move a lot faster than the language can. So we need a technical report that exists outside of the ISO, um, full ISO standard process. So it's not, it's not going to be like an ISO standard. It'll be a technical report document, which we can update more rapidly as tools evolve, as compilers evolve. Oh, that, that makes sense to me. Um... We usually think of the library, the language in terms of well, there's the co-language and there's the library, but the truth is there's really this other dimension of tooling, right. which if, you know, if language and library are properly specified, supposedly the tooling, um, you know, you can portably work with any tooling, but in practice, there is this other dimension of you're running on a particular file system with a particular ABI, all these kinds of things, and, and somehow you either standardize them or you don't standardize them. And um, if you don't standardize them, then that means that different compilers on the same platform can't can't share object files. And if you do standardize them, then somebody has to do that, whether it's the OS vendor or the chip vendor, or you know somebody has to define what these standards are. And um, right, yeah, it's so. I think the idea is that although the this report is not part of the standard, so you can still be conformant and not follow it. In general, you're expected to follow it unless you have a good reason not to. Uh, and you may do, because we can't cover all platforms and, and all tooling environments uh, needs 100%. But most of them should be able to follow certain conventions that can make the whole thing a lot easier. And it would mean that you you couldn't say that someone wasn't ISO C++ compatible just because they used a different way of trying to solve these problems, yeah. because it's not part of the official standard. Um, but it, it allows, you know, one of the issues we have is that Theoretically, competing tools shouldn't be talking to each other at all. That's antitrust violations and all sorts of crap. Hmm. And so that's what we have the standards committee for. It's so that people who are literally competing with that can still get together and talk. Um, and supposedly it's in a way that's instead of being um, out to disadvantage the consumer, but actually to better serve the consumer. At least that's the whole theory of this. Um, and it works. Well, so far it's worked pretty well. <laughs> for the most For the most part. Yeah. For the most part, <laughs> there, there are people who are critical. <laughs> I haven't actually met any personally, but there are people who are critical of the process. Um, and if you are critical of the process, uh, please write to me. We'll have you on the show. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so um, so let's talk about Pitchfork. What the heck is Pitchfork? So the story behind the name, at least, uh, it started as a Reddit post forever and a day ago, at least two years now, because... The document hasn't been changed in, has been modified heavily in over two years. But it started as a Reddit post that prepare thy pitchforks because there's there's certain topics you don't you don't talk about with ex, without expecting the angry mob to form and come come burst through your front door. 
and I was I was I thought we weren't going to talk about uh, East Const on this show. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of those uh, sp- spaces versus tab, Vim, Emacs, all that, um, and project layout is one of those things that oh, there's there's obviously the correct way. It's the way I do it, um, but it's the way John does it. I was expecting quite. <laughs> yeah, I was. Ex- I was expecting a lot more pitchforks, as you would say. People like, no, this just no, this just doesn't work. But that wasn't really what I found, and it was all about the layout of the of a typical C plus plus project, as in the file system structure of the project itself, starting from the root. So, like, where you place your source files. Um, relative to each other, what the names of the directories are, and things like that. And it started out pretty simple with a few little directories, but it sort of expanded there to add more uh, features. Um, I think there was three Reddit posts until I had like a full document that outlined quite a bit of, of details. And it's publicly browsable, and it's semi-formal wording, like as formal as I can without uh-huh. being pedantic, I guess. Yeah. But um, there's the subscriptions. For- so it's a, so it's a, it's a set of, uh, it's, a, it's advisory, but it's, but it tells you how to lay out um, a, a project file on disk. Or I should say a file, a project, a set of files on disk. Right. You know, this right. is one of the things, and I, I, it's it's absolutely terrific that C++ doesn't mandate this, right? That right. C++ should be able to work no matter how you lay out your files. However, right. to someone who's beginning and they're saying, well, I don't have a preference. Tell me, you're the expert in C++. Tell me how I should be laying out my files. And I see this all the time. I'm installing uh, software, some, you know, Unix piece of software. And they say, well, you put it wherever you want. It's, well, where should I want? You tell me where, you know, and I'm glad that you're not mandating. I'm glad that you're saying you can put it wherever you want and then you put a path to it right here. But it's better if we kind of all decide, okay, this is a good layout. Somebody thinks it through and says there's advantages to this to do this layout. And that's what Pitchfork's trying to do. Right. And there's different different levels of prescriptiveness. Yeah. So at the top level, I don't know if you've looked at the document itself. At the top level, you have uh, several directories like src for source uh, there was some there was some um, bike shedding over where that should be src or the word source spelled out or you with a capital s spelled out or something else uh, there's an include directory that's also optional um, but once you go inside of either source or include then there's a different kind of uh, provisions which in which are basically how you should relate the namespace structure of the project to the file system structure of the project, right? So every library in Boost is is a, in a subdirectory called Boost, for example. And a lot of them, you can step into sub-subdirectories. So you have Boost slash ASIO slash TCP slash whatever you got. And there's a namespace structure there. And the namespace structure closely resembles the the structure of the directories that you would get to include those things. Um, 
there's also provisions over whether you put the header file adjacent to the source file for which it corresponds, or whether you put your headers in a directory called include at the top level, and then you have a parallel directory called src to put the sources in, and they their relative paths from those directories should resolve to the same same-ish relative path. So um, this also uh, borrows some stuff from John John Lycos' original book, which uh, you mentioned earlier in the show with his new edition uh, over uh, physical versus logical layouts and what what constitutes a component. And I'd add to questions about like, what's what's a sub-module? Because that's not a thing in C++. It's not even a thing in the C++ modules specification. There's no such thing as sub-modules. Um, but I couldn't use the word module to describe a directory with a module in it because there's not... Because that would sort of overlap with the terminology used in the standard. Mm-hmm. Um, then what's a package? What's a project? And whatnot. Um, so... What, well, yeah, there was some, there's also some contention over whether the top-level SRC or include directory should even be needed because I've seen people both online as well as in real life coworkers uh, give me give me grief over like why why should I put this here why don't I just put the put the source files right at the top level mm-hmm. and I do have reasons it's more for the for the uh, it's the it adds a level of indirection that really assists in terms of tooling. So, for example, when when I need to set the include directory, the include search path on a build system, I know exactly where that is rooted. So I can say right here on SRC and right here on include, search from here, mm-hmm. and that gives you one unambiguous location and. Someone browsing the file system can easily see, okay, here's the path to that file. I can just hash include relative to this include directory. So it sets it sets a good place to to consider the actual root of the of the sources, and it's even called a source root. Oh, it's called a source root in DDS. It's not part of Pitchfork specifically. So what is Pitchfork? Is it as it looks like there's code here. So it's not just a set of prescriptions. It's a set of, it's a tool as well as a tool in a library. I was working a long, a while ago, I was working on a tool to go along with the spec document, which would let you manipulate and query these source directories or these, um, these project directories that conform to this layout, as well as like a quick start. Like you could say PF new, and it would just spit out a new project structure. Um, after, I don't know, two years of yak shaving, I'm writing my own build system. So that's kind of how I got where I am today. So I'm very, I'm, I guess everything I'm currently working on is just yak shaving to get back to Pitchfork eventually. <laughs> Tooling to support the original Pitchfork uh, proposal. Right. So you mentioned DDS. What is DDS? So it's a, it's a build system that I made, which is like the cardinal sin of SG15, because 
I mean, we've got too many of them already, right? Uh, well, the solution is always going to be to add another one. Right. Yeah, let's add another one that works with all of them. Yeah, that's the idea. Uh, it's, it's. Uh, I guess this primary gimmick is that it's zero configuration necessary. I mean, there's configuration you can add to it, but uh, you should be able to just say DDS build on a project and it'll spit out uh, the libraries and run all the tests and all that. It's not an entirely novel idea because um, Peter Bindles has evoke. Yeah, he has evoke. Oh, we're good. Uh, <laughs> I like Michael's case. Why do I have an SRC directory? It's because we are not monsters. <laughs> that is, that's probably the best, most concise answer. Um, the answer uh, for DDS, it's it's supposed to be a zero configuration build tool. It's it's you run it. You don't need to run the configure step like you do with other build tools. So it doesn't do any platform or feature detection. It relies on the project doing that all on its own. And I mean, with the advent of, of things like uh, has include preprocessor directives, you've made exciting strides in terms of being able to do that reliably. So whereas old build tools, or rather I'd say auto tools, well, I think all familiar with the dot slash configure make scenario where you say dot configure and then auto tools checks the presence of 700 headers, half of which have been universal since 1978. So um, now that we have things like has include, we can ask that question at compile time rather than um, having to ahead of time make that determination in a in sort of a best guess platform specific way it it specifically is built based on project layout so the way you structure your source files is significant it it uses the pitchfork layout with some additional provisions and tweaks um the idea is that it's it's aimed particularly at library authors although it has some capabilities of building applications as well and it also includes functionality in for resolving, downloading, and um, building dependencies as well as including them into other projects. So it's kind of a hybrid between a build system and a package manager. And one of its primary goals is also to play nice in others' build systems. So there's support for using it from CMake. So if you have a project that is DDS, you can use that project from a CMake project without any hassle. And a lot of this relies on recent advances that have only been made in the past few years, especially with the CMake 3 and later that have changed. So that's most of what DDS is about. That makes it easier to support as a, to support being a, a, a CMake entity that it, that CMake can understand what you're trying to do? Um, somewhat, yeah. So the, the file format that it emits, CMake has uh, features that it's able to consume them more easily than it could have in the past. And it's not specifically CMake that it targets. Uh, DDS doesn't mention CMake anywhere in its source code. Um, it's The files that it emits 
are able to be parsed by a, a very small CMake script shim. So it it's seamless from the outside, but uh, some stitching in the middle that uh, glues them together. So this shim, is that something that comes with CMake or comes with, I don't understand. It doesn't come with CMake. Although my, my ultimate hope is that it, that it would. And the shim itself doesn't even mention DDS. So it, the DDS itself spits out an intermediate file format that is specific to neither DDS nor CMake, which describes how you can consume a library. And there's a CMake module I've written that is able to import that representation and expose them as imported targets. Uh, my ultimate hope is that it would be successful enough that it would be shipped as part of CMake standard, but uh, it's still a work in progress. All right. So one of the things you might expect me to ask is, have you talked about anything like this at any conferences? I, I haven't given any conference presentations yet. I've been, oh, I've been to CPBCon 2016, and I intended to go to C++ now 2020, but uh, we're not we're not quite in a place to have any conferences right now. Yeah, yeah, tell me about it. Maybe if we're lucky, we'll. If we're lucky, maybe I'll get to CPPCon 2020. But fingers are crossed. All right. Um, by the way, submissions are open. So if you wanted to do a talk on Pitchfork, um, now would be the time to make that kind of submission. Yeah. I'm just pointing that out. I was thinking about I was thinking about doing presentations for C++ now, but maybe I'll submit for CPPCon. Yeah. See what. See what comes from that. Do it. Mm-hmm. Not if everybody knows your name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Everybody knows your name. Um, you said something about uh, that you actually can detect the existence of tests and run tests. Is that? Uh... Oh, yes. So um, Pitchfork includes a provision on test placement. That's this subsection. Uh-huh. Um, this one's probably the most controversial bit in here. I ran a poll a long while back where I had some of the more open-ended, like you could go either way. There's not really a really strong, compelling reason to do the layout one way or the other. And I just said, okay, what, what do the majority of people do? And test placement is one where I ran a poll and I don't remember if it was two, it was a few, like there were a few popular responses and then like one or two very unpopular ones. Um, and I decided to put in the unpopular one and it caused a lot of hubbub amongst people. And it's actually based on the one, it's actually based on the, uh, choice from John Lagos' book is to put the, the unit test of a component adjacent to the source code of that component itself Yeah, and give it the same, give it the same file name stem, but put a dot T um, in Pitchfork, it's .test, but in uh, Lego's book, it uses .t, .cpp as the file name. I often use .tests. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, DDS will find files named .test.c or .test.cpp, and it will compile that into a text ex- test executable and execute it, execute it when the build finishes. Um, that, that lets it separate it out so it knows, okay, if it doesn't have a dot test. It's a it's a 
source file that should be part of the library. And if it is a .test file, then instead it's going to generate an executable for that file and run it as a test. So let's talk about this. What were the more popular things? The more popular things, I assume, was to have a separate test directory. Yes. And uh, after some discussions, I did have it. So there's a test placement section called one called merged test placement, which is the dot test adjacent to the components and the separate test placement, which is just there's a directory called tests and you, you throw stuff in there. There's not really a prescription on that one because it's a lot harder. And I think I'm in the, I'm in of the opinion now that dot test is strongly preferable. At least uh, as I've been using it, it's, really helpful, especially like when I'm doing code browsing and I look in the IDE, I see or in the file browser and I see foo.cpp and right next to it is foo.test. I don't have to go scrounging around to find where that test actually is. Well, I like it more for a philosophical reason than maybe the practical ones, which is that it makes test a little bit less of a an afterthought. Right. You're, you're really elevating that and saying the the module is not done until the tests are written. Right. It's part of the module. And that's, I think, part of what John Lakos is saying is that if you've written, uh, you know, you don't really have a component. If you have just a CP file, you need to have the .h as well. Mm-hmm. And you don't have a component. If you just have a header and a implementation file, you need the test as well. You're not done until you until you've done the test. And I kind of like the fact that those three files represent what a what a you know a component is, um, and so I, I I'm very sympathetic to this. I can see people looking at it differently, but but to me, um, that's very compelling. Yeah. So I yeah I agree that um, as I've been doing DDS and specifically with this this sort of adjacent test placement, it's really helped like keep them in the forefront of the mind because as I'm switching back and forth between the two, I can't help but also see that dot test there. And I know I better go update that while I'm here. So, and also part of DDS is when you run DDS build, it always runs the test unconditionally every time you build. So you can't forget to run the tests and you'll know immediately if you've broken a test. But um, I'm I've now have the opinion that a top level tests is still useful, but it shouldn't be, like it shouldn't be like component level unit tests. They should be like the proper integration tests or the acceptance tests that might take a bit longer. And DDS itself has this. So it has .test files for each of the subcomponents. And then it has a directory called tests, which will take the final executable and run it through a whole um, onslaught of tests that uh, poke all the functionality. So that's... That's what that's where I am, and that's how I feel about that. Right. I find a lot of tests are either more cross-cutting, not necessarily integration tests, but just even at a unit test level, you often still need collaborators from different uh, translation units. But also just that there's just not always a one-to-one correspondence between the set of tests and similarly named source files. Yeah. So I'd, I guess it depends on... How, for me, the biggest contributor to how I want to deem a test is not really whether it's a unit of, it's a single component, but rather on how fast it is yeah. and how, how quick you get results back. So so if you... if you The microfeathers definition. Yeah. Which is what? 
Michael definition of a unit test is a test that runs fast and is repeatable, mm-hmm. which usually implies isolated. Yeah. So I'll, I'll run a, I'll put my unit tests and if I'll make sure they run in under half a second. And if they run any longer, even half a second is pushing it. That's, yeah. that's pretty, pretty lengthy. Um, and even, even tests that like touch the file system, I'll still put them in unit tests but just sort of give them a proper test fixture that can reliably set up and tear down the environment as long as it takes less than some threshold, like half a second. Yep, same here. I think there's some evolution in the history of testing. You know, initially where testing really was an afterthought is we built an entire app and then gave it to someone else and said, you go test it. Um, And so testing was almost always some kind of integration test, some kind of full thing. And then we begin to realize, wait a minute, this is not the way it should be. We should be testing at a lower unit, at, at, the, at the unit level, right? We should test the code as code. And I think that's where the emphasis has been, and that's where it's been, um, where we've been missing. And now we do have to, have to say that that's not sufficient. Module-level testing or unit-level testing is something that was sorely lacking. And once we start to do that, then we can step back and say, now, how do we how do we test the application as an application? Because integration testing, you can have perfectly functioning modules and then put them together wrong. You, you still have failures at that level, right? So all the units are perfect, but we managed to not glue them together in the right way that we need to test that as well. Yeah. I I got into the industry when TDD was the really the, the hot thing. So there was, oh, you, you test, 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 100% coverage. You need... To write your test first, you had all that sort of stuff. Um, and that's sort of relaxed a bit now. We're like, okay, maybe we can sometimes write code without tests first. So I can hear that cat. <laughs> <laughs> I think the cat has a different opinion. Yeah. The cat says, no, 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 tests first. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. The, the cats have nine lives. They can afford it. That's right. Mm hmm. Our, um, you know, my, my background is exactly the opposite. You know, I came from a world where testing was kind of, you know, you make the app and you throw it over the wall, let somebody test it. Um, and they'd send you an email if it didn't work. Uh, you know, I mean, that was, uh, it was a little bit more, a little better at the communication than that. But the point is testing wasn't integrated the way you, it was when you came in. And I don't want to see us back away from that. I, I personally have to work hard to keep testing in mind all the time. It's not, it's not intuitive to me. It's not natural to me because, because that's not how I, that's not how I was trained. That's not how I, I shouldn't say it's trained. I was pretty much self-taught that it was not priority when I taught myself programming. Other people weren't hyping on the testing all the time. And if you have that kind of um, build it with tests in mind, that's great. Let's not lose that. Let's not back away from that. Let's just add to that and say, well, okay, we have high quality components now. How do we test them as a, as a uh, ensemble? What I think is great about this conversation is we're discussing the details of how we test in specific ways, whereas years ago it was should we test at all? Right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I don't think anybody thought we shouldn't test. Mm, you'd be surprised. It was just you know, you know how important is that, and and you know should and just throw it to a QA. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Should engineers waste their time doing testing? Can't we just hire somebody else to do the testing? Um, uh, Customers. 
It's it's less important. Yeah, yeah. Customers, that's what let them pay us. That's even better. Instead of paying somebody less to do tests, let's get them to pay us to do the testing. That's great. Uh, what a great system. Um, were you about to say something, Colby? No, I'm just sort of thinking um, this, sort of, this 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 idea that there's a tension between or whether you test or whether you move fast. But I think if your tests are making it so you can't move fast, you've probably got to change your test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it shouldn't take an hour to run to, to validate a change. If your change, you should be able to change to test is to test an insignificant change in in order of milliseconds. And you should write a test if you need to validate that change. Well, I think the opposite of moving fast in this case is not the time it takes to run the test. It's the time it takes to write the test. Right. And, and I've seen this, you know, you ha- if you have a lot of test coverage and you go in and you add a new feature, you break a ton of tests, not because you broke the app, but because the tests weren't expecting this new feature. And so a lot of broken tests are false positives in the sense that, well, we need to update the test. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm not giving an argument that, you know, that's a waste of time. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that's a fact of life that if you're changing functionality, you have to change tests. You may also have to add some new tests. I hope you do. If you're adding new functionality, you should add new tests. But you may also have to change existing tests because the new definition of what the function should do breaks the old tests. Okay, that's fine. Um, and that's what the time can, time is. But I can tell you, and I've seen this a number of times as a new programmer on a project, I used to do contract programming. So I'd be brought in to an existing project and they'd hand me some documents, say, this is the feature we want you to put in. And I'm terrified of going in and changing the existing code because there's very poor test coverage. And so I go in and start making changes so that my feature, oh, my feature works perfectly, but who knows what I broke because there's poor test coverage. And so that's where you get the speed. It gives you the confidence to say that, and that's what I didn't have. I didn't have confidence because it's like, I'm not sure how, I can't tell who else calling this and in wonder what context they're calling this function. And so if I change it, what are the implications of changing this function? And that's what's scary. You have good test coverage. That's what makes you move fast because you just go in and say, oh, I'm going to hack this function. If something breaks, then we know, you know, we know properly how it's used and we can fix it because we have good test coverage. And so that's why I think, yeah, good test coverage speeds up development. Well, you do pay the price to develop that test coverage, right? And that's not. I, I find that whether I write the test in parallel to writing the code or whether I write all the code and then write a bunch of tests really, really affects how, how, uh, I don't know how tedious it feels. So if I write a whole bunch of code uh, foolishly and not write any tests, and then I get done, I say, uh, I've got to write tests now. And then I spend 10 minutes just like, oh, I don't, I don't want to do this. I want to move on to write real code that does real stuff. But if, if I upfront write, okay, test, test that I can default construct this and then make that work. Okay, then test that this method works. And then actually write the method, and I go through that step of lockstep, writing the test, writing the code, back and forth over and over again. It's a lot more satisfying, especially because you can see you can see the progress of of the API you're building as you go, because you can actually see the results rather than I hope this works at the end. Well, and I would hope also. I mean, I've actually done this where I've written an API. And then decided, well, I'm going to document how this is used. And then having documented how it's used, I have to go rewrite the API because 
the use cases, the, the API is perfect from the inside out. In other words, if you know what you've built, the API makes complete sense. But if you're a user, the API isn't really optimized for you. And so when I tried to document it and say, this is how you'd use it, I realized, oh, this doesn't really work for how you want to use it. Mm-hmm. And so you go in and change it. And I think you'd, if you're writing test coverage, you're closer to writing you're writing the use cases, mm-hmm. right? You're writing not necessarily the documentation in the sense we're explaining why you're using it this way, but you're in fact using it that way. You're saying, okay, this is... Right. Executable documentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is in fact what we want to be able to do with this. And you write those cases first. It's kind of like writing the documentation first. It's saying, this is this is what we want to do. And then you build your code to actually perform that way. Yeah. I think it's a, a much better way of building code. As I said, it avoids the situation where you get get the code working and then realize this isn't really very usable. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, I'll, I'll dig this up so that uh, uh, so we can put it in the show notes. But recently, uh, Dave Abrahams wrote an article about good libraries, what it takes to write a good library, and the, and the focus really, really is on looking at how it's called, making certain that the names of the library uh, functions and classes are such that if you look at how it's used, it makes sense. And and that has to make sense. Looking at how people are going to write code that uses your library, if that code makes sense to the user, that's the qual- that's a good library quality. And interestingly enough, most people designing libraries don't even think about it from that point of view. But that's what Dave is arguing. That's that's the way you should really think about it. What does the code that the user writes look like? Is that easy to read and easy to understand? And if it is, that's a good library. Right. Or at least a good library design. Who knows how badly you implemented it or how well, but you designed it well at that point. Yeah. I find if, if I'm writing the tests in lockstep and I think this is actually really hard to write the test for it because it's just hard to use. Maybe I should maybe I should change it so it's easy to write tests for it. And, and usually I find if it's easy to write tests for, it's probably easy to use. It's probably harder to misuse. Or sometimes I'll write a keep writing tests, and I like I keep repeating the same line of code over and over and over again, or this whole same block of code over and over again. Maybe I should write a convenience function that does this and add it to the API because it's just so useful. And that's that's how a lot of uh, convenience APIs seem to come up, at least in my code, mm-hmm. is because oh I I was writing tests and I kept copy pasting this nine lines of code and modifying it. I should I should put that somewhere that I can actually reuse it. That should probably, yeah, that should probably be part of the library in some way. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So we somehow pivoted into TDD and library design at the eleventh hour. <laughs> yeah, I think we're already overrunning. Well, the eleventh hour reminds us we're running long here. Um, These are great topics, but uh, I think we need to push them to another show. This is why Robert Ramey says, write the docs first. No, I, I think that that makes so much sense. All right. Uh, thanks thanks for having us on, Colby. You don't mind if I call you Colby instead of Vector? <laughs> oh, that's fine either way. My friends call me Bool. Then it, <laughs> no. you, should, you should get a shirt that says that. My friends call me Bool. All right. Well, Ulf is my middle name. Ulf <laughs> is my middle name. Ulf <laughs> is, yeah. Most most sites don't let you put angle brackets in there in the username. What? Mm. What narrow narrow minded people? Mm. If it's Unicode, it's a character. You know, right? Why restrict it? 
All right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been great having you on, Colby, and um, we've uh, we demasked you or unmasked you or whatever the, the correct it's a bit bit mask phrase is, and so it won't be a mystery now when people see what's that? It's a bit mask. Bit mask. It's a bit mask. <laughs> a, di- a dynamic bit set. Right. Um, so at this point in the show, we want to uh, wish all of our uh, all of our audience safe coding. And uh, thank you very much for being on and for revealing your secret identity. And, right. And join me and, and Phil and wishing everyone safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding, everybody. <laughs>